Hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to us so far. Jeanette and I are both kind of new to the podcast game, and sometimes we make mistakes. Uh, the audio for the following episode is not ideal, but we thought the content was so great that we decided to release it anyway. Trust me, you get used to the bad audio pretty quickly. So thank you so much for listening to us, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to So Many Wrong Notes. <laughs> the podcast where two Asians squabble about music. Jeanette, put that disgusting thing away. <laughs> it, it's impressive though, it's, right? It's, it's really long. It's impressive, but it's also inappropriate for our podcast listeners. Whatever, I'll decide what's inappropriate. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> I, Freddie, do you remember the uh, MTV Celebrity Deathmatch? Yes, vaguely. I never watched it. Vaguely? Well, I never watched it, but I already, because uh, I, I didn't have cable when that was on. So I um, heard all the buzz about it, but I never watched any of those. I uh, got yeah. old. I mean, claymation is, well, anyways, the reason mm-hmm. I ask, you know the basic yeah, premise yeah. of it, right? Okay, okay. So, let's say... There is a pianist in the ring and a harpsichordist uh-huh. in the ring. Who do you think would win? Well, oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see here. What a juicy what bit. A ju- first of all. <laughs> first of all. Yes. Why all this violence with you, Jeanette? It's claymation. It's not real violence. It's still representing violence. And second of all. Why do we, I'm angry. You are an angry Asian woman. <laughs> Why do we have to pit the two against each other? Mm-hmm. And third of all, I'm going to say a harpsichordist would win because I'm a harpsichordist. And that's the only oh, reason. No, I think I think we we might be more crafty. Oh, oh, evil and manipulative, right? You would have underhanded ways. No. I think we just have better ways of assessing the situation and using them to our advantage. I think I think creative would be better than crafty. Crafty has a negative right. connotation. Because we're more creative. Except <laughs> except I think that's BS too because I'm not <laughs> pianists can be just as creative, but Well, actually. Well, let's get okay. into it. I think that harpsichordists actually are more creative. Yeah. Musically. Why is that? Um, and and sort of going with a interpretive style that is more free, mm-hmm. more unfettered. And uh, to me, it seems that harpsichordists are able to improvise um, and just be able to bend time expressively, which pianists sometimes have to learn. And, and and don't have as much opportunity to use. What I, do you think? I mean, yeah, I see I see where you're getting at. I mean, yes, there is improvisation involved in playing the harpsichord. And there mm-hmm. is definitely a, a bending of time that is certainly different from how pianists bend time. Right. So... Essentially, you're right, but I feel like if you just gotta argue, I do because 
because why? I'm just so annoying. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Duh. Duh. No, but I feel like, in a way, if you if we're talking to a jazz pianist, I feel like a jazz pianist, again, improvises, and sort of bends time in a way that's different from classical pianists. Yeah. So I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that that's just a harpsichord characteristic. Well, the options were harpsichord versus piano, not harpsichord and jazz piano interloper and then piano. Okay. I mean, jazz piano is not (laughs) piano? Oh, oh, I see. I see where you put in that loophole because I didn't say classical pianist. Exactly Uh, right. Okay. Mm. Uh, Wow. Always late to that. Well, I mean, this is something that you're probably going to outright yell at me for saying, but just hear me out. I think the essential premise or the essential difference between a harpsichord and a pianist, according to popular relief, is the lack of dynamic Mm -hmm. range. And so I feel like harpsichordists already have a creative way of dealing with that situation to be expressive. Okay. I I brought you out. <laughs> Good. Okay. Now, now you can come can... Okay. <laughs> it's a very sensitive topic. Uh, uh, I'm sure. I always say, when I feel very cantankerous, that um, that the myth of harpsichord not having any dynamics is propagated by idiots. By idiots. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, and why are they stupid? Because f- to me, the harpsichord has tons of dynamics. Right. Um, I don't hear any dynamic limitations. Um, mm-hmm. But you could see how somebody yes, would I, 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 I can that. totally understand why people think that. I think that's just a holdover from very negative press that the harpsichord has received because the harpsichord does have a lot of dynamics um and it's only you notice a lack of dynamics in uncompelling players oh oh i like that argument yeah (laughs) so for me harpsichord has tons of dynamics it's very clear when you hear a good player, what they think is strong and what they think is weak. Mm -hmm. And in very good players, you can hear a crescendo and you can hear a diminuendo and you can Mm -hmm. hear, um, you can hear them voicing things. Like you can hear them wanting you to hear a specific voice, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what pianists do all the time. And what sometimes I think people think the harpsichord cannot do. But well, maybe maybe um, it's a matter of thinking about it differently, right? Because it's very black and white on the piano. You're loud in yourself. Mm-hmm. But um, is it true that on the harpsichord, loud and soft become more than just a dynamic, but they can mean time and they can mean inflection as well? Yes. You're absolutely right. It okay. means kind of time and inflection and, I guess, articulation as well. Is is there a greater range of articulation on the harpsichord? I wouldn't that? say that there's greater range. 
I would say that pianists tend not to think about the range of articulations. Oh, again, blaming the performer. (laughs) (laughs) But that's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I find myself when I do play the piano that I am considering um, a lot more articulation issues than I did before I started playing harpsichord. Oh, so do you think harpsichord playing has enhanced your character? Definitely. Oh, wow. Um, I feel like... Here's what I feel when I play the piano. I feel like, oh, this feels very uncomfortable. But I go, oh, Oh. wait, I I can sort of feel how I could be more expressive than I was before. And a lot of it comes from harpsichord playing. Oh, so it opened up a world? Yeah, it opened up a world. Um... And it's kind of a world where um, I can create different sounds with just my fingers rather than utilizing the pedal as much. Ah, very yeah. important. So I just feel like that harpsichord playing has enhanced that part of my piano playing skills. So I feel like having a sense of articulation or thinking about articulation differently can be beneficial to pianists and that's something that I learned through harpsichord playing. Huh. Well, I I think I remember you actually pointing out some issues with rest and the issue with articulation and breathing in when you've listened and you yeah. play. Yeah. And um those were comments that I don't usually hear. I mean just from from uh-huh. peers. So uh, it was interesting. It was very helpful, actually. Yeah. I mean, because if I mean, one of the big things that I think about in harpsichord playing is having a note last. (laughs) Um, Uh So and it comes up in piano playing as well, because if you have a long note, it's going to die. But that long note is very important. Right. And I'm always thinking about in harpsichord playing, how do I project that long note? And you can because you don't have a pedal, I don't have right? A pedal, and also just physically, the sound dies quicker. Mm-hmm. So, how do I um, draw attention to that note, and how do I make it seem like it's spinning and being musical? For listeners, Franny is waving his hands in long, extended, <laughs> expressive gestures, just like giving you the actual. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I thought it was very balletic, oh, so that's thank why I you. had to embarrass well, you. Well, that's my other career. Cool. Ballet. Ballet? I mean, obviously, you can tell from my body. Okay, so I guess, I guess that what, I'm, what I'm wondering, by asking this deathmatch mm-hmm. question, is that, is it really one against the other? Or do you think that's a problem with our society's way of thinking? That we always think about what one instrument lacks in comparison to the other. I think, yeah, I think it's a societal thing of just comparing the two. I think what harpsichord suffers a lot from, however, is people tend to think that it's an evolutionary thing where the piano, Ah. It's the best version exactly. of the keyboard, right? When okay. I don't think that was the case at all. 
Um, and mm-hmm. I think they complained about all keyboard instruments, really. It's easy to complain I mean, about it. It's big, unwieldy. It's big, it's unwieldy. It's kind of unnatural. You're just pushing buttons, if you think about it. Um, You're just pushing buttons. And it's also kind of unnatural because you can put stuff together by yourself. And that's completely unnatural if you think about music, right? So, well, yeah. So yeah. essentially, if you're playing a keyboard instrument, you're really engaging in musical schizophrenia, right? Because you're always thinking <laughs> in like multiple voices and multiple, oh, this voice is doing that, or this is the harmony and this is the this is the melody, right? Oh yeah, that is the hardest yeah. thing, especially in teaching, exactly. piano, right? Our teaching, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's hard to focus on multiple things exactly. at once. I mean. Well, um, I guess I was just thinking a lot of us are introduced to harpsichord after playing mm-hmm. the piano. It's sort of like part of our major. Like, that's how I was yeah. introduced. Um, I had to take a seminar as a doctorate student in piano performance, and I just had a seminar of harpsichord. And I think probably a lot of the unfair comparisons happen because people are pianists first, mm-hmm. right? I Yeah, and I, I, I think... Well, here, I'm just, it's a little bit more complicated than that, I think. Um, I think the harpsichord suffered in the early 20th century because we didn't really have good harpsichords representing us. Uh, So we have what I call the Landowska harpsichord, which are basically pianos. It's like steel frame and and it has tons oh. of bells and whistles and um, the sound is not that pretty. The mm. sound is not that pretty. They're also very heavy and mm-hmm. they're not very stable in terms of tuning, right? So I mm-hmm. feel like the harpsichord suffered because of those instruments. I see. So we, I think we still have these myths that harpsichords are hard to tune, that harpsichords are heavy to move, and harpsichords are really soft. But yeah, as soon as the generation that really started studying the older harpsichords and built them to, you know, the specifications of how they used to build them, those myths happen to be not true because harpsichords right. are generally light. I mean, some are heavy, but they're not as heavy as those Landowska instruments. Um, they tend to project very well because uh-huh. it's pretty much made of all wood. All that steel in the Landowska harpsichord was absorbing all the sound, right? So she, she pant, patitin, patitin, shit, patitin, <laughs> For some reason, she played a historical harpsichord, and then Uh she asked them to pretty much rebuild it so that the keyboard was a modern piano keyboard, and it had all these modern piano bells and whistles inside of it. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why that happened, why she preferred that. Because she was a god, right? But... She that's what she preferred, and that's the kind of harpsichords that were built for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And in, in any event, I think that's why there's a lot of 
negativity surrounding the sound of the harpsichord. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of people are told this kind of inadvertently in piano lit class, like, oh, this is what the harpsichord sounds like, and then compare that to how the piano sounds, right? And it's like night and day. The Landowska harpsichord <laughs> really does not sound good. But well, I think the the basic it was kind of stated matter of factly to me. It was just like harpsichord doesn't have dynamics in piano does. Yeah. So and, yeah, it was just kind of like an obvious statement. It was like an obvious like statement, and I think that I I might be wrong, but this is my <laughs> pet theory that I think it really comes from those Landowska harpsichords, which really don't hmm. have dynamics. <laughs> Which really don't right, sound right. G- good. They don't. They sound. Yeah, I find them. Oh, you're really pained about well, this. <laughs> I find them very unpleasant to listen to, and it's kind of a shame that when a lot of people think about harpsichords, they think about that style of instrument. Yeah. Uh, and before we move on, I should say that I love Lindowska. Okay. I, mean, I thought she, I think she was a brilliant musician. And one of right. my favorite recordings of a Mozart piano sonata that I can't remember is by her. And she played it on a... I, mean, I, I can't even... I don't... It's not even... <laughs> okay, um, sorry. And it's, like, incredibly charming. And there are things that she plays on the harpsichord that I think the performance is very charming. But I just think mm-hmm. it's that sound. It just sounds horrible. So I think right, people right. come to the harpsichord with that sound in mind and therefore yeah. kind of dismiss it as being ugly with no color and has no dynamics. But if you look at the yeah. instruments uh, built to the specifications of, you know, like 17th, 18th century specifications, they sound yeah. beautiful. They have tons of color. I mean, we kind of talked about this in an earlier podcast about your... You came as a pianist to the harpsichord, mm-hmm. yet you did not have the common reaction. Um, most people just kind of play the harpsichord for a credit, yeah. and then they just don't stick with it. But you actually stuck with it. Um, and so I was just curious, like, what makes you so keen on the harpsichord instead of the piano? I think it's kind of how the harpsichord works and I've talked about this before about um, feeling the feeling the string and really feeling like I have control over the sound in that way yeah Um, I think what I also like about it is that it's Mm -hmm. it's extremely mental what and (laughs) that could be so many things I know and I'll, I'll I'll try to explain Okay. Harpsichord has this magical way of doing something that you believe in. <laughs> so. Wow, that that's real. I know, right there. but it's very <laughs> true. And all these okay. things that I'm talking about in terms of dynamics is if I really believe I'm making a crescendo, it really does sound like I'm making a crescendo. And, and what do you mean by that? I mean, I, I, I totally yeah. understand what you're so saying. So there but... are physical things. There are like technical things that I would do to give the illusion of a crescendo. Um, mm-hmm. For example, adding more notes if it were a continual piece or mm-hmm. holding notes a little bit longer 
and then also mm -hmm. overholding things. Overholding yeah, things. To make it... Is that the same as holding notes a little longer? No. Okay. Uh, I guess I'm talking about overholding. I'm thinking more harmony and holding notes. Ah! Holding okay. notes longer. I'm thinking more just melodically articulation-wise. So like those sweet, sweet suspensions? Kind that, of that kind thing. of thing, yeah. Where you're just holding... Well, I mean, does this have something to do with um, something that you said to me once about how every little physical thing you do um, is actually reflected in a harpsichord much more clearly than on the yeah. piano? Because it's so sensitive, yeah, right? Yeah, it's so sensitive. And yeah, the, it's, it's just surprising how the physical action really affects the sound. So I've talked because if you believe it, yeah, exactly. you probably move differently, right? Yeah, exactly right. And so part of okay. playing the harpsichord is getting movements rid of movements that might interfere with that. So okay, so you are like learning movements that aid the music you want to make. Oh, like Tobin. Okay, not right. <laughs> well, yes, coordinated yeah, movements, yeah, yeah. Uh, efficiency, maximum efficiency. I mean, is it kind of like um, when you move less, the more control you have? It's sort of. Uh, do you do you ever subscribe to that? Because I I've, I've watched you play and you you are actually very fluid and engaging. So is that a conscious decision of yours to be always moving on the harpsichord? Um. Yes and no. <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, I mean, you move when playing the piano, too, so you're just... Yeah, I just player. move, and sometimes I think the moving might not be very beneficial to the to my harpsichord playing. Um, ah. But I think I do try to move now. I, I try to be more conscious about moving in a way that aids the playing. Right. Sometimes moving could just be like, you're just moving, and it's really not doing anything. At this at the state of thinking that you are right now, um, trying to move in a way that enhances my movements. I mean, enhances the the playing at yeah. the piano instead of detracts from it. Because like you move your head around, you listen in different places. Actually, mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah. So I mean, I should say that this is probably the podcast where Franny realizes I don't actually know anything about tarp I already knew that. So, oh really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> just just based on my like dumb questions throughout our friendship no yes and no <laughs> oh, oh based on the lesson yes. you gave me which is like huh <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyway i mean and yet you stay friends i know that's a true asshole yeah that's a regret okay um... <laughs> so so i think shut up i'm gonna cry now <laughs> um, okay, so let's say that um, there was another freak like you who wanted to transition <laughs> from the piano. <laughs> it okay. took a while <laughs> to, that wanted to transition from piano to harpsichord. Yes. What advice would you give to them? What would you caution them against thinking as they embark on their studies? Um, I would say, are you sure? I would literally ask them. <laughs> Are you sure? Um, Why is that though? Because it's hard being a musician in general, but maybe it's because I'm a harpsichordist. 
it's just hard being a musician. It's just hard being a harpsichordist, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I would probably just say that once. And then I would probably just encourage them to really, because it really does open up a whole new world. And I would just think about, you know, oh my God, there's so much stuff that you'll discover and it's going to be so awesome. <laughs> and I guess really what I would say is to kind of keep an open mind about it all. Uh-huh. So, um, Do you think there's a there's a danger of not having an open mind? I think if you're kind of trained a certain way and, and as, as a pianist, a pianist um, mm-hmm. initially it can be very, very uncomfortable because um, not just physically getting used to the instrument, but just the way you kind of have to think, um, think uh, like, for example, I think for me one of the hardest things was when I began was what's on the page isn't necessarily what you play. Right, right, very yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, and it's not even like I'm adding ornaments or anything like that. I mean, like. For example, in French Baroque music, there's the whole concept of note en égal, right? Which uh-huh. is pretty much some notes are swung, okay? And there are some rules on how to swing the, these notes or what notes to swing. Um, right. But just getting a handle on how do you even swing the notes and make it sound nice, <laughs> right? <laughs> is is really difficult to achieve and again Mm -hmm. if you're looking at a piece of music that swinging isn't there right you just know that you have to do it because they all talked about it so it's just getting used to that i think and that Mm -hmm. might really mess with your mind because you're so used to like being trained as to do what's on the page and yeah you need to be exactly what's in the score and it's not yeah. that necessarily in the in harpsichord playing there's a, just a lot that is within the interpretation of the style and do you think that's why a lot of harpsichordists have to be historically informed they have to do a lot of research oh, yeah. i mean yeah of course um Exactly. Like, if you play French Baroque music without note en égal, it's just not... It sounds pretty bad, It sounds yeah. awful. It sounds awful. Okay, awful. Really Let's does. go there. It sounds <laughs> awful. But then, you know, like, Frescobaldi has specific instructions on how to play his toccatas, and you need to know that uh, in order to play not only his toccatas, but probably every single toccata written after him <laughs> up to a certain point, like yeah. even Bach toccatas. Is it also like um, repertoire of the earlier period is less standardized, and so you have to each composer has a slightly different way of noting things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely true. I think it's not even like each composer; it's like each town era, (laughs) each town. Okay, (laughs) right? Has a might have a different way of doing things. So you just kind of have to be aware of yeah of what was going on. Um, so when when I was young, I used to 
my mom's camera studio had a big picture of Chopin, mm-hmm. very, very gloomy looking. <laughs> and then a big picture of Beethoven, very angry mm-hmm. looking. And I would practice a lot of Chopin and Beethoven being a pianist. And I would feel this fear. Like I, I had an active imagination. So I always fantasized about them hearing me yeah. practice. And I was just like, oh my God, they are rolling over in their graves. Like literally, uh-huh. like I was just so afraid. Um, <laughs> but what you're saying is if there is a big poster of Festivaldi up there and then another picture of Bach, yeah. they would be very happy with what you were doing with whatever you were doing, right? Well, I don't know about that. I don't know if they would be happy. Um, <laughs> okay, but you wouldn't fear to have that same I wouldn't, fear, right? Yeah, I, like, I mean, I wouldn't have that same kind of deification that you would, that you're expressing about Chopin and Beethoven. And that's not to say that I don't admire Frescobaldi and Bach any less. It's that I feel connected to them as human beings rather than as these monolithic figures. Right. So here's this thing that they wrote. (laughs) And what they wrote is saying something and I need to figure out what it is that it's saying and mm-hmm. it's not necessarily true that how they wrote it is how you would play it and I think that's okay so there are two, two questions okay. I want to ask but um, the first one kind of just going off of what you just mm-hmm. said um, I think that you're actually knowing the piece better if you're not so focused on what exactly is written on the page, right? Like when you're when you're looking at it from that angle, mm-hmm. what you just said, um, do you think that you actually have to know the piece from the inside out much more than if you were to study something only by the printed printed note? Yeah, because when you're really learning a piece, when I'm learning a piece and I'm doing this more, is I get into the habit of taking away notes. Yeah. So you're really kind of trying to get to the core of of the piece. So you right, recognize right. that there's decoration. And so you strip away the decoration so that you understand, oh, it's going to this, to that, to that. And then you understand mm-hmm. how the decoration would... Enhances. Enhances it. Yeah, exactly. Or it creates a certain affect. Uh-huh. So, so you've got the meta, yeah, right first. Yeah. Ah, uh, I just wanted to use the word. Meta. <laughs> I know. You just want to show off how smart you are all the time. <laughs> well, no, I, I really, I really, I really want to say Froberger. Froberger's. Did I say it right? Froberger is a composer. <sighs> I love Froberger. I love that name. And he he always makes me hungry because it reminds me of hamburger. Really? He reminds me of frogs. That's the first association no, I have. No. Which could make you hungry if you're Chinese in Chinatown. That's true. Which. Oh, so good. I'm not. You're not hungry? I'm starving. No, no, I'm not Chinese in Flushing in Chinatown. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so the other question I was kind of, kind of getting at to something that you had said about. Um, being drawn into harpsichord because of the repertoire. Mm-hmm. Um, is is what you were saying that 
difference of thinking about the repertoire and the printed note. Um, is that why you were drawn to it? I think initially or... I was just drawn to the different sound world, right? Because ah, okay. if you're playing, like, let's say Louis Couperin, which is one of the first composers, harpsichord composers I played, Louis Couperin uh -huh. sounds completely different from anything that I was exposed to before Louis Couperin. It just... Oh, when were you exposed to the harpsichord, actually? Uh, the first time was when I was an undergrad, but I wasn't really into it then. I think I was more focused on piano then. And mm -hmm. then during my master's, I took a harpsichord class, and that's sort of when I became much more interested in that kind of repertoire. So, mm -hmm. yeah, something like Louis Couperin sounds completely different from any anybody that I had played before or had listened to before, right? Mm -hmm. Or even, um, yeah, someone like uh, Froberger sounds completely different <laughs> from what I... Or... Okay, confession, I don't really know what Froberger sounds like. That's okay. I've, I've never actually listened to Froberger. All the harpsichordists are sending you death threats right now. That's okay, I can handle them. Yeah. Because my answer to Celebrity Deathmatch would be, you guys would be crushed! Like, flies! Why is that? Oh my god! Because I would just play a fucking huge-ass chord on the Steinway D, and you'd go flying off the, the ring. Because it's so loud. Orally, you'd be hit. Oh, I'm just staying silent because I'm <laughs> enjoying. Because your soul. No, I'm enjoying you. As I fizzle yeah. out. <laughs> see, this is why the harpsichordist would win. You see, I just won right now. Oh yeah, I rumple still suit yeah. myself. Yeah. Like I suit myself mm -hmm. in half. It's really easy yeah. to do, actually. So okay. anyway, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think I was initially drawn to that, and. And initially, I was very uncomfortable with adding things or realizing that I had to do that. But it just right. became... It just became more comfortable. And I guess I just realized that if you're going to play the harpsichord, that's how you play the harpsichord. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, how, how long did it take you to get comfortable? Because... I, I am uncomfortable with it, and I, I would like to get comfortable. I don't know if I am still comfortable, frankly. Um, oh. Don't be, don't be modest. I'm, like, you're pretty I'm comfortable I'm really with it. not being modest. I, I, like, there are tons of times when I'm playing and I go, well, that was fucking stupid. <laughs> Why the fuck did you I'm, do that? <laughs> right? Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm still kind of coming to terms <clears throat> with it. Um, I think, sorry to get all Oprah again, but I think it's just <laughs> being more comfortable with yourself kind of uh, helps you become comfortable adding all that stuff. Yeah, it's a confidence yeah. thing, I guess. So, yeah. as one... You're allowed to be Oprah, as long as you're more Oprah than I am. Than okay. <laughs> so I give you all the Oprah points Great. you want. Well... Yeah, so I, I guess, like, I'm not too clear on your origin story, actually. My origin story? When did you... Your origin <laughs> story. I assume you came from your mom, and there was a birth in there. But, no, I mean, like, when was it clear to you that you wanted to major in her school? Like, when did that become a career option? It took me a while. So, 
<clears throat> I happen to take a lot of breaks. I happen to have taken. I think that's the best way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when you correct I know, yourself. I'm grammar nerding myself. I uh, happen to have taken a lot of time between degrees. So between my undergrad and my master's, I took two years. And then between my master's and my mm -hmm. doctorate, I took three. Um, mm -hmm. So it was during my master's where I really started wanting to play the harpsichord seriously. And then mm -hmm. I took three years before I started my doctorate in harpsichord. Um, I was I was like a professional adjunct. So I was adjuncting and I was also taking some harpsichord lessons on the side and um, and on occasion playing some harpsichord as a gig thing. Oh. Um, and it was during that time when I was thinking, God, there's so much more that I feel like I can learn and I'm so behind that I just decided to go get a degree in it. Uh, and at that time, I was just... The, the prospect of getting another master's was not fun. So I decided right. to pursue a doctorate in it. And that's how I ended up at Michigan. So you can get a doctorate in harpsichord playing without having majored in um, it No, most players, most, most places want you to have at least a master's in it um i just happened but to... you had performing experience well yeah no I, I since i was taking lessons on the side um that master's requirement was waived for me ah i see i, I mean because technically you are double no right? no because at manhattan i was i was a full-on piano major i was okay i was just saying if you took lessons i mean yeah but instrument. it wasn't like Again, I I took some lessons at Manhattan School of Music, but I didn't take that many. It was only after I was oh, out okay. that I like seriously started considering it as, as something okay. that I would do. Um, especially because during that time, during my before I started my doctorate, I was playing a lot of piano. I was playing because mm -hmm. I was a staff accompanist, cool. right? And I was not enjoying that experience. <laughs> Yeah, it can, it can burn you yeah. out, that, that sort of job. So I think I was using the harpsichord kind of as a refuge, and it just became ah. something that I really wanted to pursue. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, now I feel I know you much more better. Much, much better. more better. Inger. It's, it's fucking, fucking infectious. Oh, my God. Stupidity. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, so, I mean, you mentioned, like, vast repertoire for your instrument, just just the, the historical repertoire, mm -hmm. which um, probably we pianists only know, like, what, 120th of, if you consider sure. it? Yeah. I, I mean, we barely, barely learn anything about it. But then, I remember one of your last dissertation recitals, you commissioned pieces for mm -hmm. Hubs Court. So it's it's not just limited to that time period, no. right? Like, do you think it's making a resurgence in contemporary repertoire? I think so. I think I think composers are starting to take it seriously as an instrument in its own right. Um, I think 
I think composers are always looking for new and interesting sounds. And yeah. new and interesting sounds can all sometimes come from old and interesting instruments, right? Well, I mean, I think that things in instruments in history are, are just art in general goes through yeah. cycles and it comes yeah. back. And like what is old fashioned in one particular point in time is suddenly sounds mm -hmm. new mm -hmm. again. Uh, I mean, for me, it's just important as a musician to play music of my own time. Yeah. I just think that's an important part of being a musician, period. Yeah. And so that's why I'm always open to playing new music. Well, I mean, hmm. Yeah, so anyways, I, I think uh, that taught me a lot. Thank you, Franny, oh. for educating me on my lack of harpsichord knowledge. My pleasure. But more more importantly about the difference of thinking yeah. that comes with playing the harpsichord. And um, I find that what you said about the harpsichord making you a better pianist mm -hmm. Is it seems very true to me, especially now after having talked to you, um, and I wonder if all pianists would benefit from that thinking. I think so. I mean, if not even, I think organ playing and harpsichord playing are very similar. By the way, huh. I'm not I'm not like a proficient organist, but I've taken some lessons in organ, and um, <laughs> I think if not harpsichord playing, I think playing organ will also help. Right. Um, I mean, there's there's got to be a good reason why all piano majors are forced forced to take other keyboard yeah, instruments, right? Yeah. But I I think what you are kind of saying is that the education of these instruments could be better. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think, and I think it's becoming better. Frankly, I feel mm -hmm. like more pianists are curious about playing harpsichord. Um, kind of seriously or they take it more seriously than I feel like they did even when I was getting my masters I've, yeah. I I don't know I, I that's just something that I that I that I'm just feeling there's no scientific basis to that but I feel like people are becoming more accepting of that um right they're more respectful they're more respectful yeah um and I feel like people are really listening to the harpsichord instead of imagining what the harpsichord sounds like which is <laughs> you usually know. the lendaska oh it's lendaska and the other harpsichord reference that i get from like from um people of middle age is middle age. lurch from the adams family in the old adams family tv oh, show yeah. lurch played the harpsichord <laughs> so unfortunate yeah. that became the signifier yeah. anyway you want to wrap this up let's wrap this up <laughs> wrap it up wrap it up okay please so, don't ever use that voice again a... anyway you want to wrap this up all right so obsessions oh yes please. obsessions what are you obsessed with okay this is an obsession that just came about today oh uh, can it, that really be an obsession? It is, though? because I'm still thinking about it. Um, <laughs> okay. I went and saw this movie called oh. Manchester by the Sea. I've heard of that. And... I still don't know what it's, it's about, though. 
it's about this guy who lives in Boston who loses his brother and he finds out that his brother made him the guardian of his 15 year old nephew oh um but that really doesn't tell you what the movie is about right i hear that and i feel like i'm bored already it's not boring it really okay i would say this it's not a pleasant movie to watch right but it was one of those movies where i was literally weeping through the entire thing oh and it was just and you're not a movie I'm crier not are you much of a w- movie crier unless it's a pixar movie they're they're yeah. unstoppable it's it's really yeah. horrible like there's not a human being alive who exactly cry. but this movie <laughs> literally i was just it like punches you in the feels anyway hmm. yeah. what are you obsessed with uh sort of nerdy not as cool i'm obsessed with william albright the composer mm. yeah i mean um well i mean right now i'm working on his his dream rags um well i mean it's, it's actually kind of cool uh we have this program called late night sandwich mm. anyways so uh yeah so i'm starting with two Chopin nocturnes and then i'm ending with William Albright's Dream Rags, but I'm ending with the Nightmare Fantasy Rag, which is like hard rock at the oh, end. Oh, nice. So, I mean, it's a good yeah. ender, which is why. Um, but, I mean, William Albright, like, uh, he was a really interesting guy. Um, I never had the opportunity to meet him. He died in 1998. But um, he taught at Michigan for mm-hmm. a long time. And um, he got three degrees there, and he was, he was there for yeah. a long time. But he was kind of a very... How did Logan put it? Very flowery language kind uh-huh. of guy. And he would always wear like a Panama, a big Panama hat and these like white yeah. biking shorts. Huh. And like, just like, like just the character. And I mean, I would have loved to play for yeah. him. But By um, Logan, he... you meant Logan Skelton, right? Your teacher? Oh, yeah. sorry. I did it again. Yes. Logan Skelton. Um, and who, who plays Rags awesomely. But um, Albright kind of... He's he's known to most people, I think, for writing rag music for mm-hmm. organ, um, writing or trying to make rag time music more popular yeah. again. Him and William Bochum both sort of were leading this movement. Um, but he also wrote a sort of experimental, um, more avant-garde music. Um, did I, I, he wrote this saxophone sonata everybody plays, like literally everybody plays it. It's it's just it's it's really cool piece, but it's it's not ragtime at all. <laughs> well, all right. Anyways, here we go. Here's that awkward moment again. Well, let's end boisterously. Okay. Yay! Yeah! Okay, bye. <laughs> and this brings us to the close of so many wrong notes. New episodes every Sunday available on our website, so many or through iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And visit our Facebook and Instagram, So Many Wrong Notes, our... Our very Asian Twitter handle, So Many Wrong Note, no S. So Many Wrong Note, no S. <laughs>